Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. It's difficult to express how good it is to be with you after so many weeks away. David actually captured my feelings pretty well on the subject. In Psalm 36 and verse 7, he said, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. I've had the opportunity to review the teachings that you guys have been engaged with over the last six weeks. I'm proud to say that they're nothing short of exemplary. In the Bible, the phrase, shadow of his wings, is an idiom that identifies the role of God's word in your life. Clearly, you guys have been blessed with an abundance of revelation and an instruction that flows like the fountain of life from his house. These kinds of teachings, they do more than stimulate the intellect. They shape the way that we see and the way that we operate in the world around us. Most communities aren't privileged to have seriously gifted teachers. They're actually forced to rely on outside sources to supplement their own scriptural diet. However, this community has been blessed with four gifted men. They're compelled by their own hunger for the word of God. And they're empowered to convey the depth and the beauty of it and all of the complexity and simplicity that the authors intended. That is both a rare and an exceptional blessing. As we engage in our review this evening, I kind of took the personal prerogative to just do something that I wanted to do. I thought it might be fun if we focused on items from last week that struck my own soul in profound ways, especially since I was encountering them yesterday for the first time. The first thing that really caught my attention is this picture. Seeing pictures of the rubble and the ashes that resulted from the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and knowing that Nehemiah and Ezra used that very same rubble and repurposed the ashes in order to make something beautiful, well, that brought tears to my eyes. The second thing that really moved my heart was this slide. They titled it, That Escalated Quickly. Seeing the way that opposition to the work of God escalated and grew in both numbers and intensity, well, this served to awaken my resolve to complete the very work that God has given us. It was a little bit like the punch in the opening bell of a fight. It revived the warrior within me and stoked the holy resolve to triumph over our opposition. The third thing that caught my attention was this slide, attack from all sides. Realizing that the attack was from all sides and that it always has been. I mean, when you're engaged in the real work of God, the attack is always like this. This serves to eliminate the internal complaint that I'm personally prone to. In fact, it shaped the whole picture for me. This is what the battle has always looked like. It's what the battle is always forecasted to be. 
And the battle is perpetual. It's always from all sides. And yet the spirit within me began to compel me and resurrect the attitude of an overcomer. It helped me to envision the throne that awaits every true believer and faithful follower of Jesus Christ. The fourth thing that moved my heart from last week's teaching was this internal conflict times ten. Since then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you run, wherever you turn, they will attack us. They said things like the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble, we cannot rebuild. Wherever we turn, they'll attack us. When I heard this part of last week's teaching, there was a kind of quickening within my spirit. You know, as as immense as the external opposition was, the real vulnerability for the believing body of Christ is and always has been the internal conflict. So church, our strength will not give out. Because it's supplied by the Spirit of God and it is limitless according to Colossians 1.29. The rubble, the rubble is not a problem. In fact, we will use what the world would discard and we will dedicate a city that is the dwelling of God on earth. That's according to 1 Corinthians 1.25-31. When it is said to us that we cannot rebuild, we will again wrap our fingers around the title deed to the finished product. It is a reality in the heavens, and by faith, it is our job to make it a reality on earth through our obedient actions. This is what every ancient was commended for in Hebrews 11. As far as that final statement, wherever we turn, they'll attack us. Well, I thought about a response to that. Bring it on. Adonai will gain glory for himself through every scheme of the enemy, and their resistance will only fuel my holy desire to see the work of God completed on earth. The truth is, their hard hearts will only serve to glorify the majesty of my Father, according to Exodus 14.4. I've asked my brothers to walk us back through a few of these scriptural gems because, as they said last week, these weapons are our water. They are intimacy with the king. They are life-giving and sustaining. And God willing, if we grasp them, they are also our victory. So on the first topic that Pastor Eric brought up, You should remember that one of the earliest messianic prophecies that refers to the Messiah as both the anointed, the Mashiach, and the king, the Melech, is 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 10. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Amen. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. 
He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. As you're looking at this picture on the screen, last week you encountered the profound truth that the Messiah raises the poor from the ash heap. Now honestly, can any of us say that it would be our first inclination to build with this kind of material? No. No. We have heard these words before, and we thought we understood them. But in this season, we are learning that the only way the kingdom of God is built is through failed, burned, and damaged stones. This will change forever the way that we view our brothers, not to mention how we view ourselves. Messiah only builds with rubble and ashes. Consider 1 Corinthians 1, 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. That's true. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Amen. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Amen. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. Hannah's prophetic prayer rightly identified the manner and the materials that our Messiah and King chooses to build with. We must build as He does. We must build as He does. Our lives or our lives will be silenced in darkness, as 1 Samuel goes on to say. However, in this house, we are learning what it means to love our brothers by valuing them as a building material more than our own lives. Amen. This means that we will see resurrection and life as the foundation for all that Adonai is doing among us. Let's move on to Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31, 37 through 40. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. Mm. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when this city, say this city, this city will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there, from there straight to the hill of Gareb and then turn to Goa. The whole valley where dead bodies and ashes are thrown and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east as far as the corner of the horse gate, will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. Now, if you understand that Jeremiah is prophesying this in the midst of the most horrific judgment to befall Israel in their history up to that point, then you should be filled with hope. A burned and damaged stone, even a pile of ash, is not proof of the rejection of God's people, but rather their perfection. Amen. 
Our God is glorified by the refinement of his people. Yes. His holiness burns up what does not belong and then sanctifies what remains. Amen. The city was rebuilt and will be built again as the foundation of the whole world. This should communicate to you that your brothers are not expendable and do not live simply to further your own ambition. Praise oh, God. That's a good word. The fact is that the brothers on your left and right will have the world to come established upon their shoulders. Have the world to come established upon their shoulders as they move from ashes and onto something beautiful. Oh, amen. It is your ability to recognize this and participate in it that ensures your own inclusion in what God is doing on That's earth. Good. Well, saints, we can't move forward without looking at the text that the Lord himself selected when preaching in his own hometown. You should remember that's Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Thanks, most Christians, most Christians would acknowledge their own need for restoration, but they would also fail to recognize Adonai's desire, like his goal to use rubble, ruins, and ashes to build the world to come. It's his preferred and required material. It is our love for the working of Adonai and our brothers that enables us to see the city that he is constructed. Every stone is precious, and every stone is a living stone. However, they were also all originally burned and damaged. Yeah. See, the glory of the Lord is that he transformed ruined cities and uses rejected stones to do it. Church, your efficacy in the kingdom is dependent upon you crowning your brothers with beauty now instead of defining them by the ash heap that they may appear to be presently. It is when we stand shoulder to shoulder in this attitude that we rise. We rise to become the holy dwelling of our God. This is when the saying comes true. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Those who will not take on this attitude and practice, well, they will be thrown out of the city that God builds where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We are confident that you will be in the city of God and that you will be the city of God. Well, let's move on to the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's found in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Israel has been in a cycle that moves from ashes to beauty for thousands of years. The truth is that any sober Christian is also in this cycle as well. This is the manner in which Adonai builds, and it's the only kind of material that he finds fit to use. The subtle idolatry that blinds us to satanic ambitions is being eliminated from the city of God as we equally experience this cycle. The days of I, me, and my calling are behind us. And we are now thinking and speaking in terms of they, them, and their calling. The city of God will only rise out of the ashes when every man stands next to their brother's calling and is completely committed to see their brother succeed. Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilt what had been destroyed precisely because they valued Adonai's building plan and materials, namely his people. There was nothing narcissistic or self-focused about these men. They looked not to their own interest, but to the interest of others. And they laid down their own lives for the advancement of God's plan in their brothers. Remember that last week you received fresh insight into a phrase in Matthew chapter 3, 8 through 9? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves... We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. There have always been men who were self-intoxicated and viewed themselves as the most important thing in the kingdom of God. The truth is that this is a building material that Adonai will not use. He is able to take burned stones damaged stones, and even piles of ashes and build with them. But he will not use a stone that is self-infatuated. Repentance from the idolatry of self, even self-achievements for God, is a prerequisite to participate in the age to come. It is the meek that will inherit the earth. It is the lowly, despised, and rejected things that God calls precious stones, gold, and silver to be used to construct the city and temple of Adonai. Now, not surprisingly, there is external opposition to this method of construction and the materials that are utilized. So let's move on to the next point that moved our pastor's heart from last week. This is that slide entitled, That Escalated Quickly. Started in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10 with a couple men that were opposing God's plans. Sandal the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite official. Now by the time we got to verse 19 of that same chapter, we can 
see that the enemy's growing. Send out the Hornite to buy the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab has now joined in. Yep. Now, just a couple chapters later, in Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 3, you see Sanballat, his associates, the army of Samaria, that did us and Tobiah the Ammonite. And then in verse 7 of the same chapter, look at this. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashtar are all opposing the work of God and the men of God. When men realize that they are rejected material precisely because they love themselves oh so much, <laughs> they tend to form an alliance of opposition. Yeah. That alliance is purported to be against the true believers. But hear this. It's actually against the true God. Yeah. Yeah. They don't like his methods. They don't like the materials that Adonai uses. They think that they themselves would be better choices. They are infected with the idolatry of self-intoxication. Wow. On that, consider Exodus 14, 3 and 4. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh, and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. There's always going to be an alliance of opposition. But let them amass. Let Cain build his kind of city. Let them form Korah's rebellion. Because these things will only serve to magnify the greatness of our God Amen. as he gains glory through them. Amen. In, the city, and in the end, the city will be built and they will have no part in it yep. other than their own opposition as it served to illustrate the majesty of Adonai. <laughs> That's what you call a trump card. <laughs> These enemies are not attacking you so much as they are attacking the manner of Messiah's building and the materials that he builds with. So look at this next slide and remember that Jerusalem is the throne of the great king. So while you're looking at that slide, that clearly shows nations all around attacking a singular location. I want to read to you Jeremiah 3, 17. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name yeah. of the Lord. See, that's the destination of Jerusalem. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. While you're looking at this slide, this has always been the interim of Jerusalem. The enemy knows that God loves this city, that it is his throne, and there's a day they will gather to honor God's name here. But in the time being, for now, opposition to the city, well, it will not keep it from being rebuilt. God will resurrect it. It only excludes the opposition from living in or being the city of God. It is not really opposition to the people of God or the builders but rather opposition to the God of the people. Yeah, yeah. Church, we're in a time of realignment with the plan and purpose of God. He's making our brothers into beautiful building materials. Amen. And he is doing it right out of the ashes of our own lives. To oppose this process or be deflected from it with your own thoughts of grandeur, well, that will only eliminate you from being a precious stone. 
It's time that we stand shoulder to shoulder with our brother. Yeah. And the greatness of what Adonai is doing inside of them. Amen. That brings us to the fourth point that moved my heart. You remember it was summarized on the slide, internal conflict times ten. While you're looking at what those fears sounded like, know that external opposition has never been the truly dangerous element in our spiritual conflict. No, the reality is that internal conflict is the more insidious threat. The subtle voice within the believing community that disguises faithlessness in words expressing misplaced concern, like, I'm just concerned that the strength of the laborers is giving out. That's addressed in the book of Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so works powerfully in me. You are concerned? Don't be. Amen. We are operating from a limitless supply of strength that is derived solely from Messiah's energy at work within us. Instead... Be concerned about your lack of faith in Adonai and Adonai's building methods or materials. If it is a genuine concern, well then wet the mortar of their calling with your own blood that the house of God might rise with them as a precious stone within it. You know, there might be some other internal conflict though. It might sound like, I'm just concerned that there's so much rubble. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 through 29, address that directly. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. So, you're concerned. Don't be! Rubble seems to be multiplying all around us. Even in this conversation, right Now, the thing is that some of the rubble is choosing to be transformed and become precious stones. Amen. If it is genuine concern that you have, then focus on bettering the men around you and start expressing 10 scriptural truths rather than 10 faithless statements. Amen. Let's take another internal conflict. I am just concerned that We cannot rebuild. Well, listen to Hebrews 11.1 in the Amplified. The juiced up. The expanded. Now faith is the assurance. The confirmation. The title deed of the things we say we. We. We hope for. Being the proof of things. We. Do not see. And the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact. What is not revealed. To the senses. You are concerned. Don't Don't be. be. (laughs) We are building a city whose architect is God. He has given us the plans and we trust him. If it is genuine concern, then focus on equipping your brothers rather than discouraging them. Mm -hmm. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You may just not have received the title in the mail yet. (laughs) But we have. So watch. Listen, 
and learn as we build on earth what God designed in the heavens. Come on. Pastor, the thing is, I'm just concerned that wherever we turn, they will attack us. Well, John 16, 33 has some commentary on that subject. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace or right order. Shalom. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You know what the Bible says about your concern? Don't. You probably won't be attacked anyway when you're harboring these kind of concerns. Given that you seem to have already sided with the enemy. Uh They're going to attack us. They're going to attack us. The rest of us, well, we're fully committed to this building project, whether that means our life or death. That's what we signed up for. Even our death, so that we might find life. If it's genuine concern, then focus less on protecting your life and more in losing your life. That will make you a precious building material, and you will then be useful for the kingdom of God. Now we've come to our last slide in our review. We promised when we began the book of Ezra and Nehemiah that every week, without fail, we would include this slide. It's titled, The Three Returns from Exile. And you can clearly see that we are in the third wave of return at this point in the book of Nehemiah. Zerubbabel and Joshua fortified the nation by establishing the altar and the temple. This is like justification. The nation is born again, and the heart of the altar is established. Then Ezra and the priests sanctified the nation by setting them apart for Adonai's work. Now in the third way, Nehemiah and Ezra are bringing the nation into physical glorification as they complete the process of restoration. You see, every believer goes through the same process in our salvation, starting with justification. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. My friends, you were justified by the Lord Jesus Christ on the day that his true altar was established in your heart and you became a member of his temple on earth. This process of salvation doesn't stop there. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So brothers and sisters, you are being sanctified and set apart for the work of God as he works within you to will and act according to his good purpose. So let's take our third one. This is Romans 8, verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Come on. As a community, we await the physically glorified bodies that are the finished temple. For that to come, come about in God's own time, it's important that we build only with his materials using his methods. Amen. In studying the three waves of returning exiles, 
we are also better understanding the threefold process of our own salvation. Amen. Are you learning from the salvation process of national Israel? Yes. So now that we've reviewed a few of the gems in the crown that is being fitted through our actions for the Messiah, let us prepare our hearts for the lessons that we will encounter this evening. Come on, somebody say this evening. This evening. The most dangerous opposition in the eternal conflict is not from without. It is always and clearly from within. The corporate body of Christ has a holy design that governs our every action. It's something like DNA in the human body. When each member is governed by the righteous genetics of Christ, there is life, there is holiness and productivity. When any member rejects the immutable characteristics of Christ through their behavior, it is cancer, cancer that must be cured or carved out of the community. Tonight you will see the spiritual and surgical precision of the fathers in our faith that dealt with the same struggles that we have had and still do have. Let's prepare our minds for action tonight. Let's prepare our hearts for long-term dedication tonight and our feet to faithfully carry out all that the Lord would bless us with from the abundance of His great house. Are you ready to pray that the eyes of your heart are enlightened? Yes. Brenton, why don't you stand up and pray for us? Heavenly Father, tonight we are coming before your presence, Lord. Asking that your word would interact with our hearts. Mighty King, that you would overwhelm, Mighty King, every feeling inside. Lord, that wants to quench, to quench the power of your word tonight. But I'm asking, Father, that your mysteries and your revelations be made evident to us. You're the only one that we'd be able to interact with your word and understand what your heart's desire is. Holy one, what holiness looks like in your presence. Holy one, what your community looks like. I'm asking, Father, that your character would be revealed to us through Nehemiah. We love you and we thank you. Well, given that we're discussing things that are beautifully made, Miss Jim, do you mind reading to us from Nehemiah chapter 5? Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exact, exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. 
So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to yep. avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Yeah. I and my brothers and my men are also lending to the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundred part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook, I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, Is this any way, is this, sorry, in this way, may God shake out in his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I have done for these people. All right. Amen. You guys ready to get into this chapter? Yes. Look, tonight's going to be awesome because you're going to see the, a couple things that the Lord has been highlighting to this body. Come on now. Some things that the Lord's highlighting in, the, in Sunday's message, things the Lord's highlighting in Thursday's message. You're going to see that the Lord supernaturally has placed this chapter before us tonight. And you're going to see some, some themes that the Lord is building in our body that we didn't plan for. God put us on this track. So as you're reading tonight, pay careful attention to what the Lord is speaking to you. Amen. He's speaking something to our entire body that we need. Amen? Amen. Let's pick up in verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. See, the importance of this verse and the deeply ironic twist in it could not be overstated. The old situational twist. <laughs> you should be noticing that the nation of Israel was birthed supernaturally because of an outcry that reached the ears of God. This is Exodus 3, 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the, seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers 
And I am concerned about their suffering. Now, we have a tendency to categorize people. When we hear the parable of the four soils, it is our natural inclination to assume that an individual is hard path or shallow soil or soil mixed with thorns. And of course, our tendency is to think of ourselves in a category of the noble soil. When we read Exodus 3, similarly, it is easy to assume that Adonai loves Israel and hates Egyptians. However, this misses an important point. The Lord was concerned about the suffering of his people. The Lord took issue with the oppression of his people. Do you think that nationalities are really the overarching theme in the book of Exodus? Look, if it is bad for an Egyptian to oppress an Israelite, then how much worse is it for an Israelite to oppress another Israelite? You see, in Nehemiah 5.1, the nation that was delivered from the oppression of Egypt is now actively participating in the oppression of their brothers. Somebody say that's not good. Not good. Yeah, Exodus chapter 22 actually builds on these concepts. We're going to start in verse 21. Do not ill-treat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. The same book that chronicles the deliverance of God's people from Egypt expressly warns God's people about repeating this behavior themselves to other nations. Consider for a moment that Exodus 22 didn't mention repeating this behavior to one of your own brothers because the very idea should have been absolutely unthinkable. If you do and they cry out to me is what the text says. Adonai will become angry. You're going to die. Your wife will become a widow. Your children will become fatherless. Now if that doesn't get your attention then we don't know what would. Remember, these warnings were in reference to how you treated a foreigner. Would not the punishment be even more severe if you did it to a member of your own family? Of course. The Torah has a way of predicting or prophesying the future. It's Adonai's perfect word. You should notice that verse 25 is not a subject change. Rather, the text flows right from the mistreatment of a foreigner straight into the way in which an Israelite might be tempted to mistreat one of his brothers. The Torah foresaw the situations in which one man may be tempted to profit off of his own brother's misfortune, and it condemns the behavior in the very strongest of terms. Now, y'all are in a position where you seem ready to sit and listen. We want you to engage with this for just a second. The text warns about mistreating a foreigner. Never 
should it have entered anybody's mind that you would do this to your own family member? Everybody in Israel is related. But without any break in the text, when we get to the subject of financial dealings, the text does predict the way in which you might be deceived into taking advantage of your brother who needed a loan. You're following us now? Yes. Yes. So most of us probably don't have enough money or financial sophistication to be charging each other interest. So let's contextualize this in a way that you will be able to feel down in the depths of your soul. Do you want to feel it? I'm talking about in the plums. You're about to. Come on. Who else is excited that Eric and Jen are back? Yeah. Yeah. All right, now, I had lost my spot. And I know what I'm fixing to say. All right, so think about these questions. Have you profited in a conversation by displaying your brother's inadequacy so that you look good? Yes. 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 Isn't that exactly like charging him interest? Yes. You are gaining something off of his indebtedness. So we're one for one. Have you profited in comparison with an indebted brother by illustrating your own merits? I have. You got to look just a little better next to Mississippi. Woo! All right, that's two for two. Let's try another one. Do you still label or identify a particular brother by his behavior that is years in the past? Yeah. 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 Do you still remember your own spouse or children about a failure that they haven't yet made up for? Meaning you expect them to correct it and you add interest to it. You always do this. And it'll take years for you to prove otherwise. Is that not exacting interest from your brothers? Let's take our final one. Do you struggle to compliment a man without denigrating another in the same breath? What does that look like? Something along this line. I really like the way that you preach today. It was not like when Pastor So-and-so preached, and I couldn't really understand the point he was trying to make. Oh, don't act like I haven't heard that before. Oh, yeah. I would name those of you that I hear say it, except that would be like exacting interest from you. There's a reason we prefaced it by saying we wanted you to feel it all the way down in your plums. Because church, these behaviors, the reason we're highlighting these things is because these behaviors are destructive to the building material and the method that makes up the city and temple of God. They can actually kill your spiritual life. They will kill your spiritual life. Render your wife leaderless. And surrender the future of your children to uncertainty. On that note, it seems applicable to read Ephesians 5, starting in verse 11. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand the Lord's will, what the Lord's will is. Remember that Nehemiah, Exodus, and Ephesians, all three of these were written to the believing community, not to the lost. It would seem that even former piles of ash, now transformed into temple stones, well, have an evil inclination towards unprofitable and foolish practices. If you have found yourself in our opening verse in the position of a money lender exacting interest through varying means, then perhaps you should remember Jesus' words and apply them so that the next 18 verses are enjoyable this evening. Amen. You want to enjoy the rest of the evening? Yes. Then let's look at Matthew 5. I'm going to begin in verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The tragic truth about charging our brother's interest is that we cannot repay our own debts. Our father has forgiven us. But if we do not imitate him in this manner, then Matthew 6 plainly says he will never be willing to forgive us. Even if you are born again and all previous debts are canceled, you're incurring a debt after salvation by not forgiving those he loves. Let's pick up in verse (laughs) 2. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Did you hear them say, but we are powerless? You should know that the oppressed may appear to be powerless, but the scripture clearly portrays that the power of Adonai is with them at all times. You see, depending on your self-evaluation this evening, that may be both terrifying and encouraging. Yes. See, remember, this behavior makes Adonai angry. It brings with it the promise that he will kill you. It comes with the warning that your wife will become a widow wow. and that your children will be alleviated from your continued presence. Wow. Let's refresh how our memory of the Exodus so that we might compare how Adonai dealt with oppression then and how he does it 
in Nehemiah's time. This is Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9 together. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So here we see that at the formation of the nation, the Lord actually sent his servant, his servant Moses to cure the injustice that was there. Now, in our text tonight, and in our point in history tonight, Nehemiah himself has been sent to cure the injustice. Move ahead a few centuries in biblical history. Jesus the Messiah appeared to cure the injustice. Move ahead a couple millennia now to present day, right here, right now. As believers sitting together in this room, it is our job to cure this injustice and to take a stand and commit to never perpetuating the injustice by participating in it. Let's draw to your mind the events of Matthew 21, 12 through 14. It says, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and healed them. Church, there may be nothing more offensive to our God than profiting off of a brother's misfortune. This is true financially, but it is also true in the currency of reputation. Yeah, if you're hearing this and you think that we're talking about credit card balances, something's wrong with you. The most common way that a Christian profits off of the misfortune of his brother is when you attempt to make yourself look good at someone else's expense. When you allow a situation to view a brother who is a burned and scorched stone that God wants to build a temple out of in a negative light because somehow or another you think that their demise enhances your greatness. This is the kind of self-intoxicated, self-infatuated ambition that has to leave this body all together. It is the exacting of interest at your brother's expense. But it's actually your death that compounds when you do it. Yeah. It should not be found among the people of God. Now the temple, which is the seat of God's throne, is a house of prayer that expresses concern for the restoration of mankind. The temple was the place for the blind and lame to be healed and should have never been the place that they experienced further loss. Hey, who in here has been blind? Who in here has been lame? The good news is this is a place where the blind and the lame get healed, not exploited. So if you and I are stones in the temple of our God, then our actions and aim must revolve around restoration in every situation and at all times. For any church to accept money from men without restoring those same men would rightly identify the organization as a den 
of robbers. All robbers will be driven out of the true temple of God, regardless of the creeds that they claim to believe. We're going to go to Luke 18, verse 7, and this will be fun. We're going to interact with it for a moment. And I will not, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, who cry out to him day and night. Will he keep putting them off? Anybody recognize the context of the persistent widow here? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The truth is that both the Pharisee and the tax collector were exacting usury from their brothers. The Pharisee was doing it by loading on men's shoulders heavy burdens to make it difficult to enter the kingdom of God, thereby making himself look better. And the tax collector, well, he was doing it in an obvious way. The tax collector was doing it by collecting taxes for Rome and sometimes some on the side for himself. Wow. But the tax collector understood that his behavior was offensive and abhorrent before God and publicly repented so that he might find mercy before God. The Pharisee, though, went home without even recognizing his own wickedness after watching this happen in the temple. Tonight, we want the faith of a tax collector. Yes. Amen. The kind that says, I will give back all I've stolen and add a fifth to it. I'm done taking interest from people. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. So that the body of Christ might become the temple of God that it is designed to be. Amen. Well, let's look at another scripture on the subject. One that is so familiar that you might not have properly applied it in your life. <laughs> When we talk about loving your brother, it's easy to keep redefining love as an emotional state. In doing so, you credit yourself as noble soil because of how you say that you feel without having noble crops that are defined by what you do. When we read this verse, I want you to firmly fix the definition of love as sacrificial, covenantal actions towards your brother. If you fix that definition in your mind, it will help you. Love is an action. Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding, except for the continuing debt to have sacrificial covenantal actions towards one another. For he who has sacrificial, (laughs) covenantal, loving actions towards his fellow man, has fulfilled the law. All of the Torah is aimed at the life and the prosperity of your brother. 
Loving actions are those actions which cause your brother to move closer to the Lord than he otherwise would be. There can be no indebtedness among us except the ongoing calling to better our brothers. This includes, but is not limited to, the kind of performance-based record-keeping that is so common in the body of Christ. We will not add usury to our brothers, but instead will become like Nehemiah, whose name means the comforter. And we will remind people of what the Torah says and then help them put it into practice. You remember the Pharisee saying that he fasts and gives a tenth of everything that he has? Well, probably would have done well to read Isaiah 58, 5 through 8. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is, this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice? And untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him. And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You see, as always, the prophets continually encourage us. That in fighting for our brothers, we then will find Adonai fighting for us. After we... When you fight for your brothers, what happens next? Man, if we could drill that down into our souls. When you fight for yourself, even in deception, where you believe it's about you accomplishing something for God. When you push yourself forward, you get Adonai to back off of you. He simply will not allow that building material in his temple. And the way Christians are deceived in doing this is you are fighting for what you want to do for God. You are fighting for your family. You are fighting for your prerogatives that you believe are for God, and God hates it. Fight instead for your brother, and then God will fight for you. Amen. You see, these are passages that each of us are familiar with. But we are in a season of learning to apply them to our daily situations. Actually apply them in order to build the city of God in the manner and with the same materials that King Jesus has specified. Taking burned stones, taking ash, and actually building them up into the temple. Verse 7. I bonded them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them. You are exacting usury from your own country. So I called together a large meeting to deal with it. What a tragic situation that we found ourselves in here. Look, this situation among the called out and the chosen ones of God caused Nehemiah to be sent into deep contemplation. 
But where your Bible says, I pondered them in my mind. Did anybody see that in the scripture? I pondered them in my mind. We have a Hebrew literal translation for you. It literally says, and then he king or reigned or ruled over my heart. Look at this slide. King over my heart is the concept that we want you guys to get from this phrase. Look at this. This is the Hebrew here. Over my, my heart, and he kinged, reigned, ruled, or counseled. So one more time. And then he kinged over my heart. Like he was the king over it. He reigned over my heart. He reigned over Nehemiah's heart. Or ruled over my heart. Nehemiah is not just thinking about what to do and reasoning this out from a database of maybe his own defined defined logic. That's not what's happening here. What he is doing is he's contemplating the Torah. And he's making sure that his next action absolutely and precisely reflects Adonai's reign and his kingship perfectly. Now that's a really good piece of advice right there. If before you spoke next, he was the king over your heart. He was counseling your heart. He was ruling over your mind, will, emotions, and most specifically, your next word in action. Might that improve a situation? Yes. Yes. The Apostle Peter, that's right, Lincoln. The Apostle Peter encouraged this step in any situation where the genuine practice of faith might appear to be under attack. Here were his words in 1 Peter 3, 14-16. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Uh-oh! Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against you, against your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. So Nehemiah did not take to Facebook as a keyboard warrior. Amen. Nor did he call a few close friends and develop a consensus against the nobles and officials. Instead, Nehemiah called a large meeting to deal with the behavior that was contrary to the word of God. Incidentally, this is the purpose of the Kehillah. How was that? Kehillah? 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 Oh, come on. Kehillah. My Hebrew is better every day. That word Kehillah, or assembly, in the Greek, the same verse calls this meeting the Ecclesia. As a body of believers, it is our job to meet in the assembly to deal with the behavior that does not conform to the practices of God's word, and also to promote behavior that does. Come on, This is not done in the recesses of your mind or in your internal logic. No, it's done by setting Christ apart as Lord and then speaking the word of God. Look, before we go to verse 8, understand, Nehemiah did not go behind a woodshed and instruct them privately. This was a matter that already involved a man going to another 
and then two men going to another. In fact, it affected a whole nation. So he called the nation together as a keilah, or an ecclesia, or if you prefer, ecclesia. In other words, as a church. And he drug the matter out into the light in front of everyone else so that everyone would know the church of the living God has no other practice. This is what you do in a church. You come here because you want to know what God does and does not accept and you want your life to be a pleasing aroma to him. So we are not a body of believers that refuses to speak to you about you and instead couches our words carefully in the diffusing of our words amongst many peoples. No, we are talking about this house where we are going and what God will and will not approve of because that is the scriptural record and it's the purpose for which we have come together. Somebody say thank you. Thank you. It seems pertinent at this point to remind you Nehemiah 3 was an overview that gave you the end from the beginning. What are chapters 4, 5, and 6? They're the description of the opposition they faced while the work is ongoing. So as you're reading these verses, they're having to deal with these internal conflicts, with these sin issues that are hindering them from completing what is already ongoing. Zanballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, they're all outside the wall watching right now how the people of God handle themselves. So when Ephesians 5 says that we ought to be wise, that these kind of matters should be settled, what do you think that means for us in the middle of our building project? So we pick up in verse 8, you're going to begin to see the prescription as Nehemiah lays it out. And said, as far as possible... We have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could not find anything, find nothing to say. That's the smartest thing they've done thus far. Somebody say, why you build? Why you build? Buy them back. Buy them back. We're going to keep moving because we are 49 minutes left on the clock. But we've been telling you for weeks now. Nehemiah is an amazing type of Christ in this passage. His behavior typifies Christ in a manner that each of us should aspire towards. Nehemiah said, we, who is we? Him, his men, those who are sacrificing along with him to build the wall. We have also bought back our Jewish brothers while they are laboring. When you seriously engage with this concept, it becomes clear that each of us were purchased by Christ at a great cost in the middle of a building project. Every time that any of us has returned to sinful and carnal thinking, well, that was like selling ourselves back into slavery and deserting the building project. Now, the only thing worse than that is this behavior where you would sell your brother into slavery by emphasizing and repeating this kind of error, charging interest or usury. The ministry of Christ within the body is one that says, as far as possible, we have bought back our brothers. Amen. Amen. We are to buy back our brothers with sacrificial and redeeming acts that resemble our Savior. This is what it means to walk as Christ did and love as he did while we build the wall. 
There was an entire message. I heard it. It happened to be this past Sunday. Yep. That was on this point, illustrating it from the scripture. In light of that, we would like to drive this further in two passages. One being from Genesis, and the other being from the Gospel of John. Will you all look at Genesis with me? Yes. In Genesis 44, beginning in verse 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No! Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Now, you are all well aware that Judah and every other brother were responsible for sinning against Joseph and selling him into slavery. The very same moment that Judah comes to grips with his own sin in this regard, is the moment that he is willing to sell himself personally into slavery for the benefit of Benjamin, another brother. This is not a mistake in the scripture. Joseph, who is like Christ in this story, actually observes the change of heart in Judah. And this is the catalyst for restoration to occur. It is always in our willingness to sacrifice for our brothers and our attempts to buy back or restore our brothers, that the truth of the gospel is displayed most clearly. It is when our brothers care about one another in this way, in the way that the Father cares about them, that the gospel actually rings forth in power. It's worth asking yourself right now, do you love the person on your left and right like your Father does? Do you care about their welfare like your father does? Have you ever envisioned yourself meeting the father and instead of hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, he looks at you and says, where is your brother? Or do you have that other voice in your head? I'm not my brother's keeper. It is almost as if we are to love one another with the same buy-them-back mentality that Christ himself lived and displayed. Church, let us have this kind of redeeming love towards our brothers in this house. Amen. We do not want to be guilty as the nobles and officials were in the days of Nehemiah. Redeem your brothers at the cost of your life. Amen. This is the heart of our Father. Let's walk through John 15, 9 through 17 for a bit. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. You have been taught, and you know that this doesn't mean remaining in the emotional warmness with Jesus while you're driving in your car worshiping. To remain in Jesus' love we must have the kind of sacrificial buy-them-back actions that Jesus displayed. Come on. His love displayed those actions. And to remain in his love, we have to remain in those actions. Verse 10. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. 
just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. You see, Jesus did this perfectly. And what did it cost him? His life. His own life. So perfect or not, the cost is the same for you. It will cost you your life to remain in his love. Verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Look, in the days before John the Immerser gave his life for the gospel, it was his joy to decrease so that his actual relative in the kingdom would increase. He even said that his joy was not complete, but it would be. If you are to know genuine fellowship with Jesus, then you will have to decrease so that your brothers increase. That is where true joy comes from, not decreasing your brothers, but you decreasing so they increase. This will be marked by joy, and your joy will become complete. It will talio as they excel beyond you. Now hone in on verse 12 with us as the passage continues. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Exacting usury is the antonym, the opposite of laying down your life for your friends. It is slow, slowing, slowly stealing the life of your friends for your own selfish enrichment. The body of Christ is and always has been defined by caring more about your brother's successes than your own successes. That is the definition of being a part of Christ's body. Verse 14 goes on to say, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Hey, what business are we in? Buying them back! (laughs) Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. We would love to continue teaching on this subject because it's so rich. But there is a message that you should listen to again on the subject. Yeah, that's right. There's a message from a couple days ago. This weekend. This message was a message that was well received. It was even applauded. Yeah! Woo! Good message. However, it is likely that it was less than half understood by this congregation. Guys, you need to go back and listen to defeating disparity and creating equals. You need a second listen to that message from Sunday. These are the truly deep things of God. We're in a season of new understanding and new application in these deep So as we pick up in verse 9, consider this historical reference from Tertullian. In the early church, they sent Romans to go spy out on these Christians, these people meeting in a place called church. The spies were converted not based on the skill set of the people inside the church or because of how they looked, but simply what is recorded in history is the Roman spies saying, I am moved to join them because of their love for each other. 
I can promise you it's going to be the same as we go into the region of the swan. It will not be simply our intellect and what we know. It'll be how we implement the things we know, which is buying them back and how we love each other. We're going to say this at nauseum. But when you sing the song, they will know we are Christians by our love, or you hear that we're supposed to love each other. You have had a lifetime of thinking about that incorrectly. Your first inclination is wrong. Your first hearing of Sunday's message is wrong. It does not mean that you generally have warm feelings about them. It means that you have sacrificial, covenantal actions towards them, that you want them to succeed more than you succeed. It means that you decrease and they increase, and that causes joy in your heart, and your joy is complete when they hit the goal. That is entirely different than just saying that you love someone and feeling warmly about them. I love people, but I do not always desire them to succeed beyond me in the kingdom. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but if I don't say it, then you might not come to grips with the same truth about you in this church. No more talk about my calling. No more talk about my family. No more fear-mongering that we don't love your family like you do. How about you just start exalting your brothers around you and everything will take care of itself. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. You guys ready for verse 9? Yes. So I continue. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you're charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. So Nehemiah, like Jesus, has set the proper example. Do you agree with that? Yes. Yes. Each of us must follow Nehemiah's example and the example of Jesus. Now in this house, hear me on this. Yeah, come on. In life-changing ministries, in the one association, let us give back our brother's reputation. Come on. Let's give back their good track record. Let's give to them the future hope that is theirs in Christ. It's time to love as Nehemiah and Jesus did. We will buy back our brothers through the sacrifice and forgiveness of all past events, not holding it against them. What we do in this manner is a statement about our fear of God and how we want him to be viewed not just within his house, but among the nations. First of all, brother. We will give it back, they (laughs) said. Yeah, you will. (laughs) (laughs) And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and empty. Do we have a brave volunteer in here? Yeah. Stand up. 
Give us a shake. <laughs> okay, Cody, you got to do it. Oh, it's the only way to work. Okay. Linebacker's brothers. <laughs> While you're contemplating that vivid imagery, it was for a reason. I promise it. Which I shall not be exacting usury upon for years to come. <laughs> you should know that it makes him swear an oath because men have a tendency to say, yes, I will not hold this against my brother. Yeah. To alleviate the pain of the situation and then later change their actions, go back on the word. Yeah. In fact, if you go survey Isaiah 58, you're going to find there's a very similar scenario. But in this case, these men hear the oath that is coming forth. They are told something very specific. I shook out the folds of my robe. So may you be shaken out. Well, the word is not exactly robe. Hence the sermon illustration done by Cody Stevens. I have a slide for you. The folds of my robe. The Hebrew word is usually rendered bosom. And after cinema verse interpreted to mean the bosom of the garment. So to begin to paint a picture, not quite as vivid as that one, but a, a picture for you, as the original audience might have understood Nehemiah's words. Nehemiah is standing as God's representative on earth, and he is announcing prophetically that any man that will not abide by this commandment, what was that commandment? Give them back their fields. Stop exacting usury. Any man who will not abide by this commandment, well, he will be shaken out of the divine assembly. The New Testament contains these actions and this imagery in graphic ways. This comes from Luke, the 16th chapter and the 22nd verse. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his bosom. When Jesus taught on the behavior of two Israelites, how many? Two. Lazarus, who was the one oppressed, and the rich man that did not have concern for the condition of his brother. The one in Abraham's bosom was Lazarus, and the rich man had been shaken out of the bosom of the faithful father because of his lack of regard for his brother. That's the imagery here. Before the Greeks brought in the off-world concepts into Christianity, where we all just want to die and go to some white pearly gate somewhere, the average believer envisioned being brought to the bosom or the side of the faithful father until the world to come was established. They did not have a concept of Elysium. That was the Greeks. The concept for the Hebrew was until we see all of the promises come on earth, our God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of men who are still living but not present with us. And when we die, if we lived in the faith that they lived in, 
then we are simply at their side. Nehemiah is standing as a prophetic image saying, if you will not do what I am telling you to do, you will be shaken away from the side of the faithful and have no part in the age that is coming on the world. Nehemiah's actions are demonstrating the fact that no man will enter into the world to come at Abraham's side without sacrificial love towards their brother Israelite. Somebody say, these stakes are high. These stakes are high. That is why he addressed it in an assembly in front of everyone, and it is written in the word for us to take warning. It would be very easy for you to excuse yourself of this obligation or to intellectually ascend to it. But when you realize that your seat at the Feast of Abraham is directly tied to what you do or do not do for your brother, for the one that Jesus redeemed and expects you to buy back and fight for, well, that ought to sober you about the seriousness of what we're saying. The deception in Christianity is very subtle. You think that your focus is on God and his kingdom when you are saying, I must go here. I must do this. God has called me to it. This is me, my family's calling. You are missing something. No part in the body is independent of another part. And you would have to dislocate yourself from your brothers to go and do that. The body builds itself up in love as we are connected to one another. You cannot succeed without the corporate body of Christ succeeding. If your left hand is growing dramatically and your right hand is shriveling, you are probably doing something very sinful. That's not how a body grows. It grows in proportion one to another. That's what's at stake here. And it's why we're harping on it. It's why we're going to drive this point home. This year, our brotherhood is going to get right. This year, we will fight for our brothers and our God will fight for us collectively. See the dangers of being rich in your own calling like that rich young man? While there are others who are beggars that you're not taking care of? Yeah, see, this behavior is found throughout the New Testament in regards to shaking dust off of feet. But the closest parallel to what Nehemiah did is in the example of the Apostle Paul in Acts 18, 5 through 6. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive. He shook out his clothes and protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. You see, Paul, like Nehemiah before him, was indicating through his physical actions that behavior like this, being abusive towards your own countrymen and your brothers, well, that will remove you from the side of the faithful father, Abraham. In other words, you are excommunicating yourself 
from the side of Abraham, from the family of Abraham, when you're abusive to your brothers, the family of Abraham, when you are exacting usury. On another night, we might get into Ezekiel's actions that were similar to Haggai. But for tonight, let's focus in on the fact that profiting off of your brother's misfortune will shake you out of the fold of the faithful and it will damn your soul. But of course, we are confident of better things for this house. Amen! Isaiah 49, 22, oh, yeah. it's going to become our aim. Amen. Yeah, you guys ready to see something in Isaiah 49 that you haven't seen before? Oh, yes. Wow. We're going to read verse 22 to you. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms. No. Is that, is that really what the Hebrew says in the back? No. No. They will bring your sons in their bosom. Oh. That's the word right there where the English translated arms. And carry your daughters on their shoulders. Guys, we're not only developing a buy them back mentality. According to Isaiah 49, we are developing a bring them back mentality. Guys, we are going to parakaleo. Do you remember studying that word? Do you remember it from Sunday's sermon? Parakaleo? To call them to our side? To call them to our bosom? Guys, we are doing this that we might bring them to the Father's side. When we call men to our bosom, we have an opportunity to thus bring them back to the side of the Father. This is exactly what it means to love our brothers just as Christ has loved us. Amen. Now, we're going to read back in 13. We're going to go back to 13, but we're going to read that passage all the way through. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and empty. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. 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 And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Yeah. So, amen has become such a common word to us that it's probably a good idea to reacquaint with what it meant to the original audience. Do you want to do that tonight? Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> Remember, they just received the word that they would be eternally damned if they did not rise to obedience. And their response was, Amen, and praise the Lord. So look at this next slide, and our Hebrew scholar is going to help us with what it's actually saying up here. So when you're looking at the slide in the middle, you see three consonants, which is the Hebrew root. That is the Aleph, the Mem, and the Nun, which is the Hebrew word Aman. The words all around the circle are all of the derivatives, all of the conjugations that form their own roots from those same three letters. So a Hebrew looking at those three letters, all of these concepts would come into mind as they're looking at Amen. Since you do not have vowels, when you see the consonants, you have to go through the range of meanings of those consonants in your mind and then translate what you think it means in this context, but they all come into play every time you see the three letters. So when Nehemiah says, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise, 
so may such a man be shaken out and emptied, their response was, we believe, amen, we will train, we will be like our fathers, amen. we will become skilled workmen, we will be the, the, the verification, we will be the truth, we will be faithful, this will come true. And after the amen, they praised Yahweh for the life-giving instruction. That's awesome. Saints, are you beginning to understand how these three waves are reforming national Israel? Yeah. The strength of these men is being applied appropriately in this case. As we pick up in verse 14 and read through 17, I want you to know in advance that Nehemiah lays out a stellar example that many New Testament writers draw from when they're discussing what leaders should be like. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistance also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Amen. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Saints, this evening we don't have time to survey every area of the New Testament that directly draws from this, but you should recognize the words lorded it over the people, where we are directly commanded not to act like the pagans and lord authority over other people. In your own time, you could visit 1 Peter 5, where Peter directly draws from this and describes what an overseer or a shepherd should look like, or many of Paul's writings to Timothy and to Titus. In this case, what we want to do, though, is examine Paul's actual practice, not just the teaching that is derived from this area of Nehemiah's life, but how Paul emulated what was done. You can tell Paul greatly admired Nehemiah by the way that he lives. The example that Nehemiah set is one that Paul clearly, explicitly follows in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 7. How many of you admire Paul? I do. Paul admired Nehemiah. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul was instructed from Nehemiah's example in the same way that we are instructed from Paul's example. Nehemiah was a governor who had a right to these things, but he did not use it. 
Paul was instructed and did not use his right so that the gospel may not be hindered. How much more should we be instructed in our day and time? When all you care about is that the work of God is being accomplished, that it is not hindered in any way. Thoughts of personal rewards and individual merit, well, they begin to dissipate immediately. Let's pick up in verse 13. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. Do you see how for the second time he is acting like Nehemiah? Setting an example? And I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Paul is imitating Nehemiah. And each of us must do the same. Stop thinking about who was right in the conversation. Stop thinking about the way the story was told when you weren't there. And be willing to die rather than the work of God be hindered because you have exacted usury from your brother. Verse 16 continues. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. You see, our fathers in the faith have set us an excellent example. And we plan on sitting at their side during the Feast of Abraham. But for that to happen, we need to follow in their footsteps. Then we know that we will be at their side in eternity. When we expect to do everything for them free of charge and expect nothing in return. You see, this is the exact opposite of the way the world and the worldly think. Church. Hone in on Matthew chapter 20 with us for a moment. We're going to start reading in chapter in verse 25. This is a pivotal teaching of Jesus here. Look at what he says in regard to our passage tonight. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's what the rest of the world does. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Power, rule, reign. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, What we're building tonight and what we're building toward tonight is something, a revelation that you need to get from this passage. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's talking to those in front of him, and he says, you need to be a servant to everybody else. He's not telling you that you need to go get water for somebody, go bring it to them. The more accurate 
rendering of this passage is that you are a servant to your brother that speaks life into the call that God has ordained for them. And you serve him by inspiring him to be the man that God has called him to be. That's what this is all about. Tonight, we are telling you, we are charging you, and we are hoping for you that you are developing a buy-then-back kind of mentality in your life that you never back up from. Tonight, we have the faith for you in this room that you are understanding that it is only when you fight for your brothers, you fight for their vision, you fight for their direction, that God begins to fight for you. Tonight, we have the faith for you. We have the hope for you that you are cherishing the burned stones. You're beginning to cherish and value the scorched rocks and the ash piles that the Lord is making beautiful by building his city within them and with them. It is our goal to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Well, guys, God loves the brotherhood of Yes! Nehemiah moved of the Spirit of God. He corrects the nobles and officials. But then he goes even further by setting the personal example. What does he do? Twelve years of sacrifice in order to demonstrate this kind of example of righteous living. One year for every tribe. He does it for twelve years. Let's continue on and finish our chapter, Linto. Each day, one ox... Six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. All kinds. All kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have, I have done for these people. Church, Nehemiah is remembered for what he did for God's people. And the same will be said of you. Consider your brothers around you. Do you view them as charred, burnt bricks, ashes? Some piles of ashes are bigger than others. Consider that you are too. That I am as well. Because this is what God wants to build the wall with. This is what he wants to build the city with. This is what he wants to build his people with. And he will not do it through those that are self-intoxicated. Pastor Eric said it so clearly. We're done with talking about my calling, my gifting, my abilities. The way that we're going to accomplish the work of God, both here in Sugarland, Texas, and all around the world, is by dying for our brother's vision. Yeah. Amen. At the end of our lives, still charred stones, but older charred stones, I want to be able to sit with brothers in this body and say, man, helping you accomplish your call was the greatest accomplishment in my life. Amen. Following you into the nations, that was the greatest adventure of my life, and I regret nothing. But you know how that works on the inverse. You are so thankful for those that pulled you into their bosom. Pulled you alongside and brought you along with them into the promises of God. Who in this room is sitting here that was not brought into someone's side and allowed to share in the promises of God? No one. Every single one of us. 
And somewhere along the way, we get so confident, we feel so accomplished that we get self-focused. And the Lord is making it very clear that that is sinful and that's no way to build and He will not use it. So tonight, we get to say, I'm leaving that behind because that is actual charred wood. That is actual burnt stone. I am going to be used by the Lord to accomplish His will in my brother's life. None of us succeed without each other. And yet the enemy is whispering in the ears all of the time. Brenton, have some things happened in your life that make you feel like maybe you cannot get as close to me as you should? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, that's erase. Not only are we not going to remember it, there's going to be no interest tacked on that. Brenton, I don't succeed as a minister of the gospel if you don't reach your calling. Would you stand up? Is there anybody else that needs to stand up and recognize the fact that there is a separation because of some way that you feel against a leader in this church? Not that you're mad at them, but you just don't feel like you can come to their side. See, this is what we're talking about healing right here. This is what we're talking about. There are no debts between us except that we continue with one another until every person standing is a success. Not just in the eyes of their brothers, but in their own eyes. What do you think it means to defeat disparity and create equals? We award it to one another. And God makes it so. Oh. The rest of the church, would you stand up with them? We're going to address and we're going to pray together here in just a moment. If you stood on what Pastor Eric just said then you can entrust that this group of men is going to stand by you and we're going to watch God be successful in your life. We're going to watch you. Some of the things that the men said tonight. Redeem your brothers at the cost of your life. You men who stood, the pastors, the elders here, the leaders of this church, we're committing to this on your behalf. If it is genuine concern that you have, then wet the mortar of their calling with your own blood. That the house of God might rise with them as a precious stone within it. When we say that we love each other, I heard it tonight many times, that that means that we have a sacrificial, covenantal actions that are ongoing in every kind of way towards our brothers. No more talk about my calling, my family. No more fear-mongering that we don't love your family like you do. How about you start exalting your brothers around you and allow the Lord to move in their situation? In this house, we're going to give back our brothers' reputation, their track record, and their future hope. It is time for us to love as in a sacrificial, 
covenantal action towards each other, just like Nehemiah and Jesus did. Tonight, it's time for us to have a buy-them-back mentality. Tonight, we've got to remember that we've got to fight for our brothers so that the Lord will fight for us. Tonight, we've got to let our hope rise that you are cherishing the burnt stones, the scorched rock, and the pile of ashes that the Lord is using in his methods and his materials for building. How can you be like the officials, the leaders in Nehemiah's day as he brought forth and they said, you are right and we are going to do as you say. It's a realization that what these men have been talking about is not just vague or in vain. That these are issues that we are dealing with right here in this room. That an amen says we're going to be faithful. That whole wheel that we saw. We're going to be like our fathers. We're going to entrust ourselves to him and he will do this. What an important evening for us tonight. What an important time for us to feel the conviction of the Lord in our own hearts about thoughts that we've had in charging our own brother's usury. It's time for us to correct this tonight. Everybody join the hands of those next to you. cannot be successful independently. Bonded together in brotherhood. Buying each other back with the blood of our own sacrifice is how we will accomplish God's will for this church. I hear throughout the teaching a passage that Paul wrote that reflects it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, I you, to offer your bodies. That word your is plural. Y'all's bodies together as living sacrifices. Sacrifices that are demonstrating sacrificial and covenantal action. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. As we pray, let your hearts find the resolve to take action upon this sacrificial and covenantal way to live. Buy your brothers back with the blood of your own sacrifice, and we will see this body rise into even greater brotherhood. Mighty God, we thank you for this body. We thank you for what you have instilled in us tonight. Lord, a calling up to your word and your standards to draw even closer to you by drawing closer to each other, giving our lives for each other. Lord, that in our hearts and with our deeds that we will reflect your heart and your deeds. Lord, relinquishing every debt, knowing that we have been totally forgiven by you and we freely extend that forgiveness to those that are next to us. We thank you, Lord, for your redemptive power at work within this body and your hand at work 
to make us one with you and each other. And to this, as one body, we all say, Amen!